This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Kidney transplants are quite common. Over 20,000 will have been performed by the end of 2022. And there are currently just under 90,000 individuals on the national transplant waiting list. They have been remarkably successful in giving patients with renal failure an improved quality of life. However, patients who have had kidney transplants have unique medical needs. Since most transplant patients will return to their primary care providers for the majority of their ongoing care, what important information do we need to successfully care for these patients? What unique medical needs do they have? And what potential health problems are more commonly seen in transplant patients we need to watch for? In our podcast, our guest, Dr. Sami Riyad, a nephrologist at the Mayo Clinic, will answer these questions and more as we discuss the management of the post-renal transplant patient. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Sammy, welcome, and thank you for joining with us today. Thank you, Daryl. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's start by, I'm going to ask you to describe the importance of having a collaborative working arrangement between us, the primary care providers, and you, the transplant center providers. It is very important to have this collaboration going forward, especially after transplantation. It takes a village to care for transplant recipients, and the primary care role is very important. When would this transition normally take place? Where in the course of a transplant? It's a very good question. So in the first year after transplantation, transplant recipients are followed very closely with lab work and visits with the transplant nephrologist and the center. Around the six months mark of that year, the lab frequency declined to some degree. So it becomes every two to four weeks or so. Many transplant nephrologists will see this is a good transitioning point to where the patient can revisit with their primary care provider and referring nephrologist, kind of catch up on the last six months, establish baseline for the patient and the kidney functions moving forward. And by the one-year mark, this is when the transplant recipient needs to be kind of in sync with their primary care provider for the care moving forward as usual. So there's a really strong relationship there between the transplant providers and the patient, which I can imagine being somewhat challenging when the patient lives out in some rural part of the country where there may not be a transplant center. How do you manage that? Distance can play a very important role in how we deliver the care. And this is when we rely on our care partners, the primary care providers in the area. So every transplant recipient is paired with a coordinator that help manage the transplant maintenance labs, like the kidney functions, CBC, drug levels, and in communication with the transplant recipients and the primary care provider office whereby the lab orders are delivered. If the transplant recipients need immediate assistance uh, or assessment, such the case of 
cold or flu or not feeling well, instead of sending them to the local emergency room, they can, can visit and get that primary or initial assessment at their primary care provider conditions permitting and ongoing care. For instance, we need extra lab or volume assessment or specific question that the transplant center need, then the first person in the rural area that we reach out to is the primary care provider. Mm -hmm. I would imagine then that telemedicine might be a very useful tool for the transplant center to use not so much maybe with the patient, but with the primary care providers. Has that been done? With the patient, we have visits. It has not been utilized in its full capacity where the primary care provider and the patient dial in at the same time due to logistics and such. It's a great way if there is an immediate question and at the Mayo Clinic that can be accommodated moving forward as the need of the patient dictates. Okay. Well, let's talk about the general categories of healthcare management that make the renal transplant patient different from a non-transplant patient? The biggest difference in the transplant recipient than a non-transplant recipient is the immune suppression medications and what that adds to the care in terms of complexity and things to monitor for. So having said that, most of the transplant patients will be on two to three drug regimen, including tacrolimus that lends itself to the family of CNI or calcium urine inhibitors, mycophenolate mofetil or mycophenolic acid, plus or minus prednisone. This combination offers a potent suppression to allow the recipient to hang on to the kidney without rejecting it. And on the downsides, it increased their chances of developing dyslipidemia or uh, post-transplant diabetes, or later on, skin cancer or other forms of cancers that we closely monitor for. Now, with this, in addition to the conditions that can be a complication of the immune suppression or expected adverse event, there are aspects that we like to reach out to the primary care group and kind of point out the drug interactions. So for instance, CNIs, including tacrolimus, can be affected by a variety of medications that are commonly used in the primary care settings. So for instance, the interaction between the CNI and the statin is very common. Many of our patients are on statin. The dose of the statin needs to be reduced when you're on tacrolimus by a factor of 50% or so. Antibiotics is a major interaction. So some antibiotics uh, commonly used for sinusitis or bronchitis, they can interact with tacrolimus and increase the level like biaxin, for instance. Other medications used to control blood pressure or atrial fibrillation like calcium channel blockers, deltaism and verapamil can increase the CNI. Anti-seizure medications, on the other hand, can reduce the level of exposure, and so on and so forth. So it's very important to hone in on the drug interaction, especially when a new medicine is being introduced. And not only CNI, for instance, azathioprine, a medicine that we used in the past and not as frequently now, but still every once in a while is being used. Uh, for instance, if a person is on that medications, then certain medications for uric acid, like uric acid, lauric agent, ulauric, and allopurinol 
will be, for instance, contraindicated for someone on azathioprine. Drug interaction, to summarize that last question, is drug interactions are very, very important in addition to diabetes after transplantation, dyslipidemia, and the routine age-appropriate cancer screening. Okay. So medication information is an important part of the transfer. So let's say that one of my patients had a kidney transplant, and Mm -hmm. they will now be transferred back to my care. What other information will I need or will I receive in addition to the information regarding medicines? So baseline kidney functions is is very important, especially in the case of kidney transplantation. That's kind of the index point. For instance, the center looks always look for increase in creatinine 25% or more without explanation. That will be grounds for performing biopsy. So I think that will be a very important piece of information that will be part of the transition of care or the or the part of the, the transfer. Also the baseline proteinuria. So creatinine and protein, while they have their shortcomings as marker of kidney functions and monitoring the allograft functions still are very beneficial and significant changes like 25% in the creatinine rise without explanation and development of proteinuria. Anything more than baseline, significantly more than baseline, I would say half a gram or more, these should be in very important pieces of imp- information. Additionally, drug level goals, just to kind of, to so the primary gets some of the drug levels. So the TAG goal or the tacrolimus goal or the cyclosporin goal. So what is the center's targeting at this stage? And, and then if that increases while the center is actively looking at it, it's also very beneficial for the patient with their primary care to point out, hey, your drug levels are high. Maybe you want to talk to your center or in a system that is very communicative like ours at the Mayo Clinic, epic grams go a long way if there's any immediate questions and such. And if the uh, primary care provider is out of the center, then patient communication and the program communication through other channels will be important. So drug levels are important to know where is the transplant center is targeting. Okay. Well, a big part of our role as a primary care provider is giving patient advice regarding immunizations. How do these differ in post-transplant patients? Are there some that we should specifically try to administer before they're on some of these immunosuppressant medications? Excellent question. Live vaccines are typically contraindicated after transplantation because of the immune suppression and inability of the transplant recipient on significant immune suppression to really fight that infection and keep the live virus at bay. So that's why we try to avoid them after transplantation. So it's important before transplantation, if the person or the candidate for transplantation to be up to date on their vaccination, all their vaccination. After transplantation, all vaccinations are welcomed, especially after the first three to six months. When the person is on high immune suppression and their immune system is near, like very, very suppressed and their ability to mount any response will be limited, but also there's that small, tiny risk or theoretical risk that the transplant center sometimes worries about waking up the immune system and the ramification of that. But around after three to six months, preferably one year, 
that's every all vaccinations are welcomed as long as they are not live vaccines. So pneumonia vaccines, seasonal flu vaccine, booster COVID when due, Shingrix, anything else the person or the transplant recipient is behind on. There is one vaccine that is worth kind of pointing out, HPV vaccine. While the criteria may not cover all recipients, especially the older ones who have not had the HPV vaccine, it, be, it may be of value, although the jury's still out and it hasn't been formally studied in case of head and neck squamous skin cancer or squamous cancer, it may be of value. Someone who's battling skin cancer time and again, it may be helpful, although I use the word maybe because the evidence still has not been developed. Okay. But to summarize, all vaccines, all scheduled vaccines are welcomed. All right. Let's talk a little bit about cardiovascular disease, since that's a major cause, if, if not the primary cause of death for renal transplant patients. What are our responsibilities to minimize this risk? And how do the parameters for management differ regarding lipids or diabetes and blood pressure? That's a very, very important area. Luckily, the same parameters apply. So for lipids, for instance, for blood pressure, while there isn't really a specific goal, most of us will tend to gravitate towards less than 130 or over 80 or lower for blood pressure, as long as it's tolerated. Conditional and kidney functions, all the medications are proven to improve survival in terms of heart, like ACE and ARBs and statin management uh, can be used in the same fashion. Diabetics are, or people who are living with diabetes are typically require a little bit extra and, and close eye. So close monitoring of symptoms, having, especially if they have history of coronary artery disease and having that established care with, in addition to with their primary care provider and their cardiologist that needs to be looked at on periodic basis to kind of ensure that they don't have symptoms and on all the medications that they should be on like the general population. So all the medications we typically use in our day-to-day patients can really be used in the transplant patients too, then, is that right? Correct. And on the horizon, GLP-1 antagonist and uh, SGLT-2, these are also welcomed in our transplant population per indication, per the degree of kidney function. So correct. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about infections. I'm sure our post-transplant patients get the same common infections that everybody else will get, but because of their immunosuppressants, what opportunistic infections do we need to be careful of? Opportunistic infection is a big part of the of what transplant teams look for and, and monitor. Let's start with viruses. So viruses like CMV and EPV are common early on in the first year after transplantation. And transplant recipients can be categorized in three major categories. They were naive to the infection and received an organ from a person who had been exposed to the infection. And that constitutes the highest risk for these infections to develop. Those who had the infection before the transplant and therefore have some seropositivity, that can be protective 
and those who are naive and received an organ from a naive donor. So the risk is considered on the lower side for the most part, uh, since usually they received a transplant in their adult life. And if they haven't managed to get EPV and CMV to that point, the chances will be low. So for the first category, the CMV mismatch, donor positive, recipient negative, they start on antiviral medications preemptively and stay on that for the first six months, the highest period of immune suppression. After the six months, they come off the medications and they are monitored. If they had arrived uh, or transitioned the care partially to the primary care providers, we always educate the patient on monitoring for symptoms of CMV. These are diarrhea, fatigue, derangement in labs, mostly the CBC, low white count, low platelets, low hemoglobin. If these develop, then we look for the PCR and can start the treatment. So it'll be helpful if the primary care provider comes across these symptoms to start thinking along the lines of CMV. So later on post-transplant shingles. Shingles can outbreak in many patients, especially if they are dealing with other infections or had been recently treated for rejection, then they can have the shingles outbreak. The treatment is very similar to the general population cut early active lesions. Then we rely on Valtrex. However, the duration may extend beyond the 10 days. That's also an opportunity to where the connection and the channel of communication between the primary care and the center be very helpful because some centers would offer reduction in immune suppression during the active phase of infection. Influenza, the same thing apply if it's cut early, Tamiflu may be used. Tamiflu can be used for prophylaxis for those who had not received their vaccine at that point of the exposure, or there's worrisome that they are distant to catch the, the flu because of a household member or such. So that's kind of, that's generally the, the viruses. One unique virus is Parvo B19. And that can present as severe anemia that requires transfusion upon transfusion upon transfusion. And that's easily treated once it's discovered. It's just, it's, sometimes it takes a little bit of going back and forth and trying to figure if the person is bleeding, not bleeding, or what's going on. And then eventually once it's, you know, transfusion recurs in, in a short interval, then everyone thinks of Parvo B19, and oftentimes it's found, and it's easy fix with treatment. These are the viruses. Now, fungal infection and mold infections by exposure, so regional and recent travels are very important. So if you are in a desert zone, then the desert fever and the molds associated with that in certain parts of the country where there's cave exploration or such, or even in the northern part of the country uh, where there are heavy wooded areas, we worry about different molds like histo, like coxie, and aspergillus. The range of symptoms can vary from vague, very mild, subtle symptoms to the old pathognomonic textbook description. Fatigue is a shared entity in many of these molds and in, in chronic indolent infections. And depending on where it lands, cough, respiratory symptoms, unexplained weight loss. So that can, can be triggers or 
clues to, to start looking for mold infections. In the southern parts of the state, like Alabama and, and Florida, there is high prevalence for cryptococcal infection, although every once in a while we see it up north and so on and so forth. So these are the viral and the mold infections. Now, very, very rare infections like Mycobacterium avium that can happen in someone who is their immune system is kind of declining while they are on full immune suppression, then that can present as severe fatigue, progressive fatigue, and weight loss in addition to lab derangement. PCP, pneumonia, in the first year after transplantation, many transplant recipients or many centers will extend the Bactrim for prophylaxis. And once the person is off the Bactrim prophylaxis, it's always in the back of our mind with prolonged unexplained respiratory complaints. So we really need to be alert for some of these atypical symptoms that could represent an infection and work quite closely with the transplant center to have our patients evaluated and then probably help getting them treated. Accurately stated. Okay. Well, let's turn a little bit to malignancies. I didn't realize this, but the reading that I did suggested that malignancies are more common in transplant patients. So does our surveillance for malignancies differ in the transplant patient? Very important area, and you are very accurate. I will take it a step back. So once the person's developed chronic kidney disease and starts dialysis, the risk for common cancers increases twofold. That's with end-stage kidney disease prior to receiving an organ transplant and going on immune suppression. With immune suppression, that risk increases a little bit to threefold. That's to cover the general cancers that we screen for, breast cancer, cervical cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and so on and so forth. Now, before we talk about the transplant-specific ones, but for those like the age-appropriate cancer screening appears to be sufficient to carry on after transplantation, like in the general population. That is sufficient to capture these things as long as it's followed. Now, there are transplant-specific malignancies. So in the first year, there is an entity called post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. And that is a spectrum of disorders that kind of uh, goes from like an exaggerated EBV infection all the way to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or other forms of lymphomas. The risk of that entity is the highest in the first year after transplantation. And it's more so in those who, from what we mentioned, the EBV discordant whereby the transplant recipient is naive to EBV and the organ came from a donor who had been exposed to EBV. So the first year is the highest risk. And then later on, it's bimodal. So the longer they are on immune suppression, lymphoma can happen. And after the first year, the risk is kind of similar between those who had been exposed and not exposed to the EBV more or less. The most common cancer after transplantation is skin cancer. And good news and bad news. Well, the good news is it's on the surface. So with proper patient education and providing the patient with uh, information and to seek dermatological attention once a year and with their, the trained eyes of their primary care providers, that can be easily mitigated. So for instance, the squamous and basal skin cancer are talking about several, several falls higher in the transplant population compared to their non-transplant recipient peers, whereby this transplant center 
instructs patients to see their dermatologist once a year. And once they develop the skin cancer, they will need to see them more frequently. Okay. Well, Sammy, you've given us a lot of information. wonder if you could summarize our discussion and maybe give two or three key points about the post-transplant patient. The risk of infection can be higher, especially opportunistic infection. So keeping an eye out and investigating any unexplained weight loss, unexplained fatigue, keep an open eye to the opportunistic infection that we talked about. Immunization is very helpful and should be maintained after transplantation with the caveat that uh, live viruses should be vaccines should be avoided. Routine healthcare maintenance, lipid, and looking for diabetes is very important after transplantation. And finally, I close with the drug-drug interaction is a big thing for the transplant recipients. Well, we've been discussing the management of the post-renal transplant patient with Dr. Sammy Riad, a nephrologist at the Mayo Clinic. Sammy, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. That, that's, uh, that's a lot of uh, stuff to digest here. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I really enjoyed my time with you and your audience. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.